0: We'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast was recorded, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past and present. This episode contains discussions of domestic violence. If this raises any issues for you, support is available through the links and phone numbers in the show notes. Hi, everyone. Ant here. I hope you're having a nice break wherever you are. We'll be back with some more amazing stories from the 17th of January. But in the meantime, I want to reflect on some of the most powerful moments of head game so far. In this episode, you'll hear from Yelena Dokic, Jackson Warren, and Jim Davidson. First up, Yelena. It was such an honour to have her share her story with myself. Whilst well, our tennis career looked like it was taking off, behind closed doors, Yelena's relationship with her father was crumbling.
1: The issue was that things were unravelling and getting worse behind closed doors. And I talk about that Wimbledon getting to the quarterfinals and my father, you know, obviously not being satisfied. Well, next year, and I continue to rise up the rankings, but I get to the semi finals at Wimbledon. So I go even one better at 17, which is a, a massive result either way, but especially. When you've come from where I've come from, and and now to be able to have results like that, but after that, he 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 thought that that was such a disgraceful result, semi finalist at Wimbledon at seventeen, that I was not allowed to come back home or come back to the hotel that night.
0: So wait, well, sorry. You get to the semi-finals um, the a year later of Wimbledon, yep. so you do one better. You know you've you beaten Martina Hingis. You get to the, the quarterfinals, the sixteen-year-old next year. Semi-finals, you lose um, the semi-finals, mm-hmm. and you you you're not allowed back to your your father. Your coach tells you that you're not allowed back to your hotel. Yes,
1: so I couldn't find him after the match. And, uh, but I do reach him on the phone.
0: Oh, so he didn't even tell you. No, you just, he disappeared. Left,
1: right, so he completely left. So the silver lining, in a way, was, well, I wasn't going to get a beating that day. But here I am, a finalist at Wimbledon, sitting in the middle of the players' lounge in tears, talking to my father on the phone who says that I'm a disgrace, that I'm an embarrassment to him and the family because I lost in the semifinals at Wimbledon to a world number one as well. Um And says that uh, I'm not allowed to come back to the hotel and to find my own way, do whatever I want, sleep on the street because uh, I'm not coming back.
0: What did you do? So
1: I stayed at Wimbledon. Uh, We finished late afternoon. I waited for everyone to leave and I hid in the corner of the players' lounge for everyone to leave to be able to stay there for the night and sleep. So they found me in the middle of the night because the cleaners were cleaning out the place late at night, early into the morning. I was just hoping no one finds me because I just wanted to get through the night and I thought maybe he will calm down and in the morning I'll just, as soon as everything opens, I'll get out and, and or I'll try and reach him and see if he's calmed down. And the cleaner finds me. Um, she was a lovely lady and uh, she just said, look, I, I, I can't, I have to alert people I can't let you sleep here and I can't let you be here no one's allowed to be here so they did they called the tournament alerted the tournament what was going on they very quickly figured out what it was and uh, called around to see who would be able to take me in until the following morning for me to be able to have somewhere to sleep for the night.
0: Yelena's story is so moving and powerful If you'd like to hear the full episode, I'll link it in the show notes. My next guest is Jackson Warne. This interview was so special to me, being friends with both Jackson and his late father, Shane. In this episode, Jackson opened up about the moment he received the heartbreaking phone
2: call. I don't think I'll ever be able to probably forget where I was or what I was doing because all you get is a phone call. And then when you hang up the phone call, your life that and your life that you've been living your entire life everything you ever knew sort of was like this just gets whoosh just completely flips upside down because you're like well hang on who am I gonna ask for advice now or well, hang on Are you tell me I can never see him ever again or well, hang on hang on you just, your mind does 100 million thoughts an hour and you're like hey, what like you you're just in complete shock that after you have all these thoughts and you let the tears out that you just sort of sit in silence. Like we, I was with my girlfriend, my sister Brooke and her partner and then my mum and we just got a call, hung up the phone and we just sat in silence for hours. And then our grandparents came over and then a few other friends and family came over but I can still very vividly remember, you know, seeing my phone and who was calling. I'm like, oh, hang on. He's with my dad. Very weird that he would be calling me and not my dad. So I'll answer it and then, yeah, it's so, oh, shit, it's real. And then you sort of just go into like a complete shock. Like you don't, you sort of don't want to accept it. Like I, I'm still convinced and it might sound crazy, but I, I'm convinced that I'm confident I'll at least have one conversation with my dad again. Like I, I know whether it be in a dream or somewhere I'm convinced in that, I'll be at least talking to him one more time because there's no there's no way I won't be able to talk to him about, you know, poker or St. Kilda Football Club or any of our hobbies that we used to do all the time. There's no way I won't be able to talk to him about it. And I I could probably I, – I, I can tell you about a dream that might sound bizarre but it would have been maybe two weeks or two and a half weeks after uh, dad passed and I was driving my car he was driving his car and we used to, not race, we used to just drive next to each other and, you know, race, race. <laughs> we used to race a little bit, but he was always the better driver and the better <laughs> car. So he'd always beat me all the time, all the time. <clears throat> and this dream I had was I was just driving my car, he was driving his car, we're both looking at each other left and right and driving and driving. And then all of a sudden our cars sort of, they sort of merged and I was in the driver's seat of his car and then I looked to my left and he wasn't there and then I sort of woke up and I can really vividly remember that dream. Like I can – everything about it I can remember. And I sort of looked at that as he was sort of giving me the permission to be in charge. Now he's like, well, Jackson, I'm giving you the driver's seat. You're the one that's, you know, going to be making the tough decisions now. You're the one that has to step up for the family. I'm not here anymore. You have to be. And I can still really, I can really, really clearly remember that dream. And I don't think it was a dream. Like it might, it sounds crazy, but I don't think it was a dream. I think it was, you know, dad sort of giving me a sign of saying, you're you're the boss now, you're in charge. It's your conscious. You're this is, yeah. yeah, you're in the driver's seat. You've got to be there for your sisters. You've got to be there for your family now.
0: Jim Davidson and his friend Mike were climbing Mount Rainier when a hidden snowbridge collapsed. Devastatingly, Mike lost his life in the incident. And Jim, attached to his friend by rope, was forced to face the heartbreaking loss of his climbing partner while also finding a way out.
3: Where are we? What's above us? And I was very fearful, but I kind of sat up on my knees and started looking up. And the ice walls were about two feet apart where we were. Then they spread out to about three and four feet apart from one another. And the angle was about 70 degrees and then 80 degrees. And then I looked up, up, and up, and the walls were dead vertical. And they got out to about six feet apart from one another. And then I looked up, up, up. And way up top, the walls started overhanging to come back together. And that's where the snow bridge was at the top of the crevasse. And that hole in the snow bridge, that way back to the world, was about 80 feet above our heads. And I said in a quivering voice, Oh, man, Mike, we are in trouble. We are in big, big trouble uh i had no idea how we could ever get out of that
0: i want to ask you a really difficult question you're attached to your buddy you realize that he's you know he's he's no longer with with you um you look up and you think right i've got to get out of here one you know i've got to get out of here to tell our story two to you know get to safety so we can uh potentially get Mike's body back three, you know, you know, hopefully one of us will live to, 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 to live on, uh, the legacy of, of, of one another. But that moment when you realize he's gone and you have to unclip from your partner, almost leaving him there, that must've been one of the toughest decisions in your life.
3: It was. It was the, the symbolism of unclipping from him was was too great. Um, partners are supposed to take care of each other in the mountains, in life, in the military. Uh, we don't leave people behind. Uh, I couldn't bring Mike back from the dead. I knew that, but he was still my partner and still my responsibility. So as I started slowly trying to figure out how I might be able to climb this wall, I didn't really believe I could because I was a good ice climber, but not world class. And back then in 1992, nobody was climbing overhanging ice like that. Certainly not me. We had straight shafted and straight pick tools back then. It was just beyond even the best pros in the world. Um, So I had to untie him at one point, but I never wanted to leave him um, unanchored. So I worked a system out of using a second anchor. I put an ice screw into the wall and I anchored his body to that. And then I had to take the rope off him because I was going to need the full rope to climb out. Uh, But before I started that climbing, I again tied Mike back into the end of the rope. So before I even started climbing, um, I figured I had 150 feet of rope between my body and his, and we were still a team, and I was going to have to make it out of there on that rope uh, because that's all the rope I had. I I refused to start climbing untied to my partner. So I worked out a complicated system to make sure he was always secured and that we were still connected. And uh, as you can tell, it's an emotional memory. But I think it was part of what the strength that I needed to start climbing because I wasn't climbing out just for me. I was climbing out for Mike because my friend had just given his life to save mine. I couldn't not have the courage to even try and finish the job. So I think staying connected, Mike, was critical to me starting. And later on, when I ran out of strength and confidence on the wall several times, I I would pull on the rope and feel Mike's body down below stretching with the dynamic climbing cord. And that would remind me that I was climbing not just for me, but for him too, and for his family, uh, so I could look them in the eye and tell them what happened. So staying connected with your partners, in this case, physically or through a rope, or emotionally is critical to doing your best even after those partners are gone.
0: Hear these incredible moving stories from Yelena Dockage, Jackson Warren, and Jim Davison in full now. I've linked the episode details in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to Head Game. I'm heading to Australia very soon. Come and see me on my Fear Bubble tour. Tickets are on sale now from Ticket Tech or linked in the show notes. See you next week.